Namo tassa bhagavato rahato sama sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato rahato sama sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato rahato sama sambuddhasa Udang damang sangang namasami So life goes on, whatever life is and whatever going on is, and we're in the middle of it. (laughs) And uh, things are changing, patterns are changing. This moment uh, in in the monastery, uh, people are on retreat, whatever that means. in structural terms, it means that uh, there's a lot less engagement with doing things and building things and making things and answering things and fixing things. So all that all that kind of energy is then available to in, go into the into awareness or into various forms of unawareness. <laughs> <laughs> And sometimes it's a toss-up, which is which. (laughs) So, in the course of this retreat, then we have various things that we specifically undertake uh, in order just to kind of keep getting some references to what's what's happening. Uh, Practices of meditation, mindfulness of breathing, practices of loving kindness, practices of to do with moral. Ethical behavior practices to do with um, sense restraint, such as keeping just keeping silent, um, living content, or trying to be content, but basically getting little, content with it or not. <laughs> and uh, and also the times when people actually go and live in solitude in the in the forest, which is a very simple abiding place basically kind of unfurnished little hut you know, in the forest for meditation. And people quite generally quite enjoy this, this experience, uh, which is a very uh, encouraging thing, an indication you know, I think we should all bear in mind, um, no matter what we think about ourselves, or that we, how well we think we're doing or whatever, the fact that one actually can enjoy uh, relative simplicity and uh, quietness is some kind of indication of uh, um, uh, an intention, an inclination that's not really about stimulation, uh, about going places, about doing things. It's much more uh, an inclination towards discovery, exp- self-exploration, self-awareness. So this is to be; these things are to be uh, recognised. So these are some of the kind of basic patterns of the retreat. And then they also they, they, they slightly we slightly change, like at this particular time now some people are coming out of the forest and going coming back into the to the house and some people are moving out of the house going out into the forest. So and then there's of course whatever that can bring up. Maybe one rather liked it out in the forest and doesn't want to be in the house, um, and so on. Uh but essentially, these uh, situations are there to, to help us to, to check out particular core values that we may have, and then to try to uh, perfect these core values uh, so that they can lead us to a sense of freedom or independence from particular uh, circumstances to what's called the, the perfect freedom or Nibbana perfect freedom or unconditioned freedom which has got no strings attached to it happiness has no dependencies attached to it and this is uh, 
kind of remarkable option, possibility that uh, this life is set up and teaching the Buddha is set up to encourage us and to inspire us and to give us practical instructions towards. We're really making a commitment to it, not just to the ideas, but to going through the the experiential process of it. The spiritual process of it both, uh, it tends to uh, sharpen and attune that in us which does incline towards aware self-awareness, and it also tends to highlight that in us which doesn't, that which does inclines towards um, distraction or protection or... Um, gratification which are say the the way the alternatives to freedom so they give us a kind of freedom it's a conditioned freedom but they give us a, a, a momentary freedom that's why they are so attractive and so compulsive for us and gratification is that possibility that one could kind of Consume or be fulfilled by something, so you can you feel yourself move out into something that's pleasant, you know, like like a sunny day like today, and you know, you still want to kind of expand into it and, and take it all in. It's uh, an enjoyable time, particularly for February, amazing, and then all pleasant food, pleasant sounds, pleasant company. One wants to linger with it and soak it up, and it does give one a kind of feeling of. Freedom from, you know, depression and restraint and being, you know, struggle and and and, and painfulness gives us that kind of sense of freedom from that. Gratify it extends our boundaries when we feel very constricted. So when one feels depressed or nervous or uptight or tense or in pain, then then the the, the reaction to this tends to be to, for something to to gratified by it, to give us freedom from that other thing. The other kind of, is, um, of, of uh, conditioned freedom is protection, where we protect ourselves, we, we feel steady and secure. Um, so it can mean friends, um, we protect ourselves with, with company, with friends, with, with familiarity, um, with job security, with house, with clothes, with these kinds of things, we kind of create something around us that gives us a sense of freedom from unpleasant impingement. You know, we feel secure, we don't feel worried and nervous. We feel that there's a sense of we're okay. But um, it's very much conditioned again, it's dependent, isn't it, on the only things being around. But Say one was out in the, the cold, or it's it's uh, you know it, it, again in states of pain and distress. It's nice to find somewhere where you can feel okay and you feel secure. So it's it's not these things are contemptible. They are they are they are they are real things that offer us some kind of benefit. Um, the other uh, condition of freedom is is the ability we have to to distract ourselves, to to amuse, to to actually um, not be aware, not be clearly aware, to, to be blurred, to, to be shifting around, to be overlaying one impression with another impression. So, you know, something unpleasant, you can put something else on top of it, an unpleasant thought, and you can put something else, another thought or an idea on top of it. You look the other way. This, this ability to, to choose and, and waver and, and keep moving. So this... this uh, gives us a kind of freedom, like the ability we can just wriggle around, for example, when our bodies get uncomfortable, we don't have to sort of be stuck with it. But they are very much con- uh, dependent, because, uh, um, you know, it, it does, does require there being alternatives around for that, for, to be able to distract and, and uh, oneself. And also they're unsatisfactory, in that you never quite fill up completely and you're never quite completely, utterly steady and secure and you're never really able to, to cover up all the little 
flaws and blemishes and things going wrong as they kind of get through. And they're also they're not they're not satisfied, unsatisfactory in that way. They also lead to things that are directly uh, corrosive, such as uh, greed. When it gets greed, then greed brings on covetousness and jealousy and envy, and and then brings around what aggressiveness and and possessiveness, doesn't it? And and indulgence. So we can if we just go overboard on gratification without any kind of. Co- Restraint or reflection on it, then it leads to something where where uh, uh, we get very much uh, we lose a lot, we lose self-respect, we lose our integrity, we lose our friends, uh, and you get involved in conflict and violence. You get whether you want something that somebody else wants, you want more than your share. And uh, security tends towards hatred, shunning, dismissiveness, aversion, stubbornness, shutting things out, a lack of compassion, joyless, um, miserly. It can lead to these things. And just uh, the distraction leads to agitation and uh, uh, shallowness of mind. And so your mind's always restless and bobbing around. The guy gets very shallow. One, one, it gets no sense of real psychological depth or uh, maturation because we never actually stay with anything long enough to really, you know, go through it properly and dart around. So these were these these things which are, give us some kind of limited freedom. Actually, are very limited, and um, the freedoms they offer are often bought can be bought at quite a high price. And so that uh, is we're trying to find alternative ways to something that, to another kind of freedom. And for the Buddha Dhamma, really teaches teaches the Dhamma, which means the way things actually, the reality of things. Yeah. To, so that if we were able to properly abide with the ultimate, absolute reality of things, and then what that would fit us, and we could we could be accepted into that, and if our hearts and minds could be taken into that, then you know there wouldn't be all this additions going on. You know, this sense of freedom from uh, freedom from needing to have, if we actually have what is, the fulfilment of it, and we are what we are, then there's, and that's, that's something that's secure. So the, the epithets associated with the absolute are, are things like uh, peace, um, refuge, the secure, the, the happy, the, uh, the deathless. These are all, you know, when, if, though truth may be ineffable, there are certainly plenty of words associated with it. And uh, so some of these are deliberately metaphorical, like the island that you cannot go beyond, the place of total peace. The word epithet, one of the ways that Nibbana is described. The secure, the deathless, very often used. The ultimate peace. So these are things that, that they're presenting us with, at least images and reflections that... Um, cater for our need for the way, way we experience freedom is that which is pleasing that which is secure that which uh, enables us to feel good a refuge place so you know it does it does speak to us can speak to us in this way I think it's important to also recognize that and, uh, the, the, the Dhamma, the Buddha Dhamma, is about the actuality of things, and that uh, Dhamma, Dhamma itself is a word that is very difficult to, to fully to get an exact English phrase for. It's something like the 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 just like an experience or a quality is Dhamma. It's not really a thing, 
It's more like a quality, like we say, fluidity is the quality of water or heat. It's as it's dhamma. It's its, it's its nature. Sometimes dhamma is used as word meaning its nature. It's not really a, a tangible thing. It's it's a it's a behavioural pattern which is consistent. Water's always wet. You know? No matter where it is, its its nature is to be wet, fluid. So it's a kind of consistent pattern, behaviour pattern. So the ultimate Dhamma is a consistent pattern that is consistently peaceful, consistently um, boundless, it's consistently steady, it doesn't waver. Now, the, the, if you like, the, the pattern or the, the process of our bodies is one of, when we look at what bodies are there, they have these elemental qualities there. You know, they've always got bones and flesh in them, and their process is one that they, are, they, they experience the experience of birth, we call birth, when the body process begins to organise itself and come together and act as a unity, and then begins to be able to support itself. This is birth. And then it grows and matures. It becomes more, more refined, more skilled at organising and processing itself and growing and giving birth to other bodies. And then it gradually begins to go into a kind of the reverse mode, that is it begins to disorganise and break up. And eventually the process called death, which is when the very structures the body begins to break up. That's it. That's its dhamma. That's what it does. That's its, that's its kind of map of bodies. They're like that. Mind, the sentiency. We have sent. The body has sense organs. They have the their experiences pleasure and pain. You've got a sense organ. It experiences something that it likes or something it dislikes, or it kind of is attracted towards or repelled by. Pleasant, painful, visual things, either ugly or beautiful. Tangible things are hurt or are enjoyed, and then there's also neutrality, which is a kind of often a wavering and ambiguous quality depending on what mind state one's in. You have mind. Mind is a kind of an organizing process, isn't it? Organizing sentient experiences through 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 being consciousness. So mind, if you like, is a kind of a structure that arises on consciousness. It's something that organises what consciousness brings in. The mind both knows, it means it registers, and then it knows it forms some kind of cognitive pattern. Yeah? And then it, it kind of responds to that cognitive pattern. It remembers, it recollects, it considers, so it's able to choose. It, it registers something, then it determines what it is, and then it chooses, and then it implements further actions. This is, this is the nature of mind, dhamma, the dhamma of it. And what that's, that's the um, what those what the mind does, and the particular structures it creates are called the sankharas, which mean they're conditioned by by its its uh, by its function. So if you like, the sankhara of a body is breathing. In order to, to organise and regulate itself, it has to keep breathing in air continually, in and out. You can go without food for hours, days, weeks, but you can't go without air for very long without breathing in and out. So that's its kind of its thing that allows it to fulfil its purpose. The body can be, can be without breath, and it's, you know, it's not actually breaking up. It soon will. So its dumber is still there. Like an unborn baby, it's still got a body, but it's it's um, when it starts to perform a, its function, it has a, a functioning quality. So the mind, its functioning quality is is is, is basically working around um, this memory stores, perceptions. That's recognizing things, registering things, sensitizing to things. And that's its, those its sankharas or its, its kind of activities. It does that. 
And this Prabhupada Sankara is always the strongest quality of, of the, the, that mind's activity is it's, it's, its intention. It kind of urges, it drives, it instigates, it commands, it does that. It wavers, it hesitates, it, it, it goes slowly, it goes quickly, it's, it's doing that, it intends. So, uh, it inter- in other words, it's action, which it for through registering perceptions and feelings and and uh, and propelling in, in, uh, perceptions and feelings and working in terms of perceptions and feelings, always got this kind of motivating intention behind it, or volitional will and choice going on. So this is the we have this, but if we if we really try to uh, contemplate and understand. What it is to what it is to have a mind. Then you can see that intentions actually are changing all the time. Then they're not consistent. Unlike, uh, um, you know, dhamma. They're not a dhamma. So you know, bodies just happen by themselves, if you like, and the, the particular processes they get instigated in order to keep them going. Um, so you can see that the body has a dhamma and it has a sankara. The mind has its sankharas, its continual activities. But we often really don't know what the dhamma of a mind is because it's, it's acting so much all the time. You never really get beneath the surface of it. It's continually thinking, calculating, manipulating, remembering, whinging, uh, hoping, aspiring, um, dreading, you know, kind of sending out messages, shivering all the time. So you never really see what it is because it's always doing something. What it does changes. And if one is really interested in mind and you begin to focus on it, it becomes, it becomes obvious that you have to first of all learn to calm it down a bit, to slow down that activity. So the mind is not its action, is it? Because its action, because its action is changing and flickering and changing direction. You can't call that its consistent overriding quality is not expressed by its sankharas so what but then we can also recognize that you can be aware of these things you can actually experience your thoughts pumping around and going this way and that way and you can you can even actually experience them just as phenomena so there's something else there isn't there there's some kind of basic core what do you want to call it? Awareness there. It's often blotted out or, or minimal. But there's that. And the sankharas or the mental activities are coming and going and changing. And then as you begin to sort of see how they work, they are fired up by these three forms of uh, gratification, self-protection, distraction, and you begin to relinquish some of those, call some of those out. Calming the mind really involves working on those three um, tendencies. So there's contentment, you know, just for five minutes or so, so the gratification, just be contented. And then faith and trust and Inner benevolence, someone doesn't need so much security. And then steadying the mind's attention by focusing on one, just one particular object and holding it there for a few minutes to just, to just check the habit of wavering and distraction. So those three things are the process that are required for, for awareness beyond the mind's conditions. Into awareness in other words, awareness that begins to penetrate the essence of mind rather than get um, percolated through the activities of it. So anything that goes in, in those directions towards contentment, towards uh, uh, um, confidence, if you like, or assurance or, or well-being, and towards uh, steadiness and... Uh, um, focusing, we can say this is a dhamma that tends towards realization. 
qualities of practices that tend towards these are processes and qualities that tend towards the Dhamma of realization. So in whatever situation one's in, these are kind of core values. If one wants to realize mind. And the nub of it is that the the interesting you get kind of glimpses of 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 what that primary awareness is. Then you know you either you get it or you don't, but at least it's presenting a possibility of something that's not about something you have to de- get, have, defend, control, make, get going, become, develop, compare, contrast, manipulate, it's just there. So this does seem to be some possibility for where this uh, freedom, peace, steadiness lies, in just that actual essence of mind. Now the the sankharas or the activities of mind are are highly evolved, and what what makes them even more highly evolved is that um, the top of the basic structures of uh, of this associated with um, physical um, pleasantness and painfulness, and trying to you know steer around those. We also have a, a massive amount of stuff around what's psychologically pleasant and painful, which is volumes. You know, bodily stuff is simple, but around the psychological stuff, you've got massive, massive amounts of, of um, activity around that, around blame, around shame, around winning and losing, and beauty and, and charm and success and being approved of and being on top and being in control and you know, all this sort of stuff going on. And uh, this, these patterns of, of be acting in those ways get, are, are called the personality. So you've got a kind of like your self-structure is this basic structure of protecting and looking after this being, that self. And you've got this kind of more highly evolved superstructure called personalities, which are conditioned in... Often there's the social, social domestic self is the personality. The domesticated self is the personality. Uh, so it's often kind of bred in, if you like, by social conditioning rather than just purely physical conditioning, cultural conditioning, family, group, you name it. Um, the human experience is a kind of, it's all that. And uh, this is, um, it make, makes the whole and, and thing much more complex because the personality, uh, the social, socialized personality is often doesn't really want to know what, about the self. It's distracting itself from, from the self, you know, which is like basic, want pleasure, uh, don't want pain, get me out of here experience. <laughs> Which is not always socially um, okay, you know. You can't sort of walk into somebody's house and start pigging yourself on their food. You know, you've got to kind of tidy your act up a bit and you'd be a bit more sort of refined and polite. And then when it comes down to things like, you know, um, we're trying to perform some of these more dealing with sexual energies. Things of that nature, you know, a tremendous amount of social domestic conditioning around that, trying to tidy that one up, what the basic uh, sentient instincts can, can kind of come up into, aren't always nicely um, refined and calibrated. You know, just, you know. So you get all this kind of stuff which is associated, which is self, but is, is not really fit into the personal personality mode. So there's a, a massive amount of, of distraction which tends towards denial and, and aversion. That's actual aversion 
to to the self or aversion to one's kind of mind its urges and its instincts and its its clamoring and its 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 moving away or infatuation with it so you, it's kind of reduplicate reduplication of the whole conditioning process goes further and further and then you get you know you don't get to get one person and you get several depending on which particular context you're in so you're kind of in a monastery and you're sort of aspiring and joyful and you know like that and then when you're watching the telly you're somebody else and then when you're at work you're somebody else and uh, you know and we will go through this when you're kind of going out looking for a, a, a partner or a mate then you you kind of get your personality some sort of state where you'll be a bit more <laughs> interesting and the nice side of it comes out you know tie your hair a bit <laughs> look a bit you know you can't just go out there as you are <laughs> oh, Lord. so you get you know, your face is the big personality's statement isn't it Ever really, you know, you look at your face in a mirror. Let's do that for about ten minutes. If you can bear it, ten minutes. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a really interesting thing to see. Just you know how this, how much goes on, how much conditioning is going on right there, just in looking at your own face. It's what what happens there, you know. And you can see really what per, how what personality is about. Personality is the need to have a, a, a perfect face, and because there are several, you know, several personalities dependent on what social situation you're in, you can never have a perfect face. It can't be dignified and jovial at the same, jovial, dignified, serious, playful, quizzical, interested, aspiring, joyful, relaxed, <laughs> but all at the same time, you know, as well as attractive, you know. Which is a definitely a, an enormously difficult thing to accomplish for any face. <laughs> <laughs> to itself, you know. Because you, you know, face is not designed to attract you, you're on the inside of it. <laughs> See, you can't, if you're attracted to your own face, it's a really strange kind of human. So if you're not attracted to it, you think, well, I'm not attracted to it, nobody else is. It's the ugly. <laughs> Look at that mole, look at that wrinkle. Eyebrows are too thick. These kind of things going on about you about this face. So it's, it's just looking at that, and then you're seeing, you know, when you just look at it, you think, well, actually, you know, just look, that's a visual impression, isn't it? And then there's just this, what, some flesh, skin, bones, a couple of eyes, probably, <laughs> uh, nose down the middle of it, mouth full of food. It's perfect. <laughs> You know, as a thing, just as a kind of lump on top of the shoulders to, to do the breathing and eating, it's, it's great. <laughs> so then, you know, but as a Sankara, you see how Sankara is extremely fragile. Uh, the condition of the condition, and the more, the higher and more refined they get, the more fragile they get. So the, the kind of, the, the, the conditions which depend upon some kind of intention or some kind of um, purpose or function, then are much more refined than conditions that don't depend upon any uh, things that don't depend on any purpose or function. Mm. So, like your hand is a much more complicated thing than your than your elbow, because you know, it's got to do a lot more things with it. So, it's also a lot more sensitive and a lot more fragile. You know, bits can go wrong with it. Eyeball is extremely refined and delicate thing. So th- that means that, that there's so much more protection and and concern about these more refined and highly conditioned aspects of what we live with, and the personality, of course, is is the is is, is the mind's most complex and refined. Um, production and as I say there are many of them, several of them most people have got a few personalities personality and they sort of fade in and out of each other 
and at sleep they get all kind of jumbled around, riffled around. Yeah. And they break, and they're often because they refine, they also break up. So people have personality breakdowns, either massive, major ones where they get really have to be hospitalised, or just the minor ones when you lose it now and then, lose your temper, lose your cool, your image gets, your street cred gets blown, your image gets gets shattered, your sense of self dignity is, is gets knocked around a bit. Um, you know, you, you're embarrassed, humiliated. Um, Bored, shut out, rejected. Well, these kinds of things are the are the things that personalities have to deal with. And not only not only done, we're not only that doesn't just happen in contact with other people. Also, in comes in contact with one's self. Humiliated, bored, disgusted, um, embarrassed. <laughs> So you, we really realize that uh, the way out of this painful experience is not going to come through uh, trying to fulfill or gratify or protect or support our personalities. It's got to be going the other direction, really. You've got to, it's got to be a coming down and away from the highly refined, particularized, conditioned to something that's broader and unconditioned. So the unconditioned, you go from the personality and our process in, in, in practice is go from your personality into what's self, if you like, and then even further beyond self into the unconditioned mind. And this is kind of process we, that, is, is, that is the process of liberation, is like that. Of course, the personality elements tend to not want to do that at all. Don't want to break up. Don't want to let go. And uh, got all kinds of strategies involved in making sure that doesn't happen. And they keep convincing us that don't do that. You know, don't do that. It'll be terrible. Don't do that. You'll lose out. Don't do that. You know, you look a fool. Don't do that. You don't need to do that. So the person is continually jabbering away, saying these kinds of things. You know, it's because it doesn't. You know, it's it's like it doesn't want to actually recognize its own frailty and its own um, vacuity. It's a protective system, self-protective. So I mean, you just live, when we live the, this particular life, a, a, a life that's based upon, not really based upon personal, personal fulfillment. Um, certainly life as a Buddhist monk is not personally <laughs> For personality fulfillment, because <coughs> it's uh, you know it seems it, you have to be keep pulling back on gratification and on protection and on distraction <coughs> and opening up, being embarrassed, humiliated, and ashamed. <laughs> And not getting what you want, these kinds of things, and actually having to own up and recognise um, the urges and drives and moods and feelings that are not personally acceptable. This is the challenge of it, and something in the mind. So often in the training, you know, like having to wear f- funny clothes like this, looking a real nitwit in public. Uh, <laughs> Can't really look, you know, your personality acts you can do on this one. You can't really look chic and debonair, can you? <laughs> <laughs> so that's out. <laughs> you know, for your Buddhist nun, you know, what are you going to wear today, dear? Well, I've got a nice little number in brown. <laughs> so, well, it's kind of face stuff, and it is something that is, is actually firmly put aside doesn't mean that that's freedom in itself but it it does begin to kind of um, present 
the path and the challenges and the difficulties of it if one can do it. Not have anything to hide behind. The meditation, sitting still, walking up and doing the same thing over and over again. Then so that that activity alone, just doing the same thing steadily, openly, objectively, begins to challenge the whole distraction and gratification mechanism. Yeah. No light, you know, so something doesn't want to do that, and see, not getting anything out of it. Not gaining the high spots, not getting the happy bits, not feeling I've become anything, not saying, oh, you know, I've got this, this is me. So that, um, it really challenges those conditioned uh, processes. And uh, our uh, it challenges, it also provides a possibility of freedom in that one, the more that, because these things also have a kind of calming effect in between the, you know, the moments of rage and despair, that is, you get this kind of calming effect. We also have a, uh, there's, a there's a tremendous emphasis on in, enjoyment in uh, holy life. Like all of, the, all of the practices that are undertaken as standard are there, to either make you feel good, or to feel calm, to feel happy, to feel uh, inspiring. They're all about that. So that, that you have these things like uh, um, just the livers and arms mendicant. Is, you know, that, that, if when you connect to that, being supported by other people. You know, not having to, to worry about that. The feeling of being cared for is a tremendously happy and uplifting experience is is, uh, very tenderizing makes you very tender hearted and compassionate and so you feel you don't don't feel so much need to kind of harden up and protect and be somebody, you can be a bit more uh, tender and and permeable and then the practices of um, things like um, uh, practices of concentration, focusing, if they're done in the right way, calm the mind and associate it with, with steadiness and poise and the mind feels tranquil and joyful. You can do that. Practices of uh, kindness and compassion brighten and, and extend the heart. And then the recollections. So... Um, Things that, that are very simple things, actually, that sometimes people neglect to undertake. Because of the, particularly in, the, in the, the stresses that occur in this life, you can end up feeling, there's this nagging feeling of, you haven't quite done it, you, you, you know, so you may the, feeling bad about yourself, for some, no particularly, just feeling negative. Because of the, of the kind of, the, 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 the conflicts between the personality experience and the self-experience. Personality, conflict with the self. So you don't want to be aware of a bad mood. And you, there it was. So, you know, you can go through days just feeling bad and negative. So that very often the, 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 the standard reco- the recollections are deliberately uh, uh, provided to snap out of that. And if you like, one of the, the basic, basic ones are things like recollecting one's own virtue. So I can get through a day, at the end of the day I just feel bad. I think, what's the matter? And then, you know, maybe it's just you felt dull in the afternoon, you felt a bit, uh, you know, you felt, didn't feel particularly inspired. It wasn't anything, you know, just felt there were negative, sta- there were negative states or states that weren't positive were happening. So, like, this is something I observed in the first monastery I was at. At the end of the day, all the monks were in the meditation area, they'd always get together and they would actually acknowledge any transgressions they committed, any kind of things they might feel they've done wrong. And I thought, what are they there for? Must be paranoid or something. (laughs) (laughs) But when you actually do that to yourself, recognize. I haven't done anything wrong, really. I haven't done anything wrong. I haven't done anything wrong. 
I've done lots of things that were good. So, you, you know, then you begin to see why I feel bad. It's not because of something I've done, but something that happened to me or something that I wasn't capable of doing. So instead of just adding negativity, you get a feeling of compassion, forgiveness, begin again. I think this is a very important thing to go through. Because otherwise this, this underlying negativity can, can dampen and deflect and blunt all one's efforts. So to be able to feel good about yourself means not just to, to do good and refrain from doing bad, but to actually make a conscious note of it. I haven't done anything wrong. Or maybe I've done a little sort of thing. Like, you know, I could have been a bit more forthcoming with this, or I could have said that better, or I could have polished that nicer, or I could have listened a bit more carefully to what he was saying, whatever. But just tiny little things that you can make a that you can make a big thing out of, and really the the, the moral precepts are quite clearly defined, and for the monks and nuns they they're exceptionally clearly defined. It's not just I was in a bad. It's not it's not an offence to have a bad mood. <laughs> it's not an offence to feel drowsy. Thank goodness. You know? <laughs> it's not an offence that one didn't, you know. Save your sentient beings. You know, it's, it's an offence if you stored your sugar more than seven days. That's an <laughs> offence. You know, that, but six days is all right. I see. You see, you've got even kind of a little license on your grief. More than seven days. That's an <laughs> offence. You know, that, but six days is all right. I see, you see, you've got even kind of a little license on your greed. You know, six days, but also, so fair enough. I kept six days. I was, felt totally obsessed and gratified with that sugar for six days, but I managed to let go on the seven. Very good. <laughs> you know, so that you've got something that's very, very tangible and specific rather than a nebulous sense of, am I perfect or not? Which is like looking at your face again. Am I joyful enough? <laughs> so it's something that you know the precepts are there to, you know, to make you they, you see they make you feel good both because they do prevent one from doing things that are would cause enmity from others or mistrust or jealousy or things like that and they do actually give you a refuge from their own perfection seeking mind expecting a conditioned thing to be perfect which it can't be so these are things certainly to do and then to take refuge in Buddha which is this uh, we can see as, as we develop the practice more they've been suggesting you you see the internal and the external Buddha and you begin to try to bring them together the, the knowing of the mind the aspiration the wisdom quality the moral quality of the mind and then what the Buddha Represents, and you try to actually see these two, and so they be, it becomes something that you you don't just think of; you actually relate to it as as a as a experience that you that you have as a kind of a, as a as a psychological model, if you like, something that you feel. Yeah, I, I I can I can contact with that in myself. Not always perfectly, but it's there. So these these are things that then brighten and inspire the mind. There's no way that uh, one can help, hope to fulfil the life without providing reasonable alternatives to the conditioned freedom of greed, hatred and delusion. It's too powerful. You have to provide comfort, well-being and, and um, <coughs> enjoyment experiences. And the beauty of it is that these are done primarily not through external sense objects that you're dependent on, but, but by your own intention, by your own volition, by things that you determine in your mind, either by things that you say and do, or by things you even just think or remember. So you're very much um, providing a reference point which is... A, which is more available 
if one knows how to train the mind to use itself, than external. And it's here with you. You know, it's not, you don't have to get it from anybody else. You can't get it from anybody else. Nobody else can take it away from you. And it's, this is the case which we've seen in, in, in these countries like Cambodia, Burma, Tibet, where the countries get smashed apart. Um, people manage to survive and stay intact through these refuges. And this is a very uh, wonderful thing to see. You know, you can feel anything, you obviously feel a tremendous sorrow, but also one feels somehow a kind of an uplift that, you know, that the, the tremendous force of, uh, of the external world is something that people can rise above, and people do, people can, and we will. If, and very often it's, it's when the things get, external conditions get rough, that we're, where we're forced to take refuge in that. And so in this life particularly, um, you know, sometimes it, it's, it's, it's really necessary to be able to take that refuge and make it very strong. Like the joy that comes through uh, a kind thought, a kind thought about others, a sense of joy that comes through serving, the joy that comes through giving, the joy that comes through, um, through these practices. And the, the steadiness that comes through, through taking refuge, through knowing, and, and the more that you see that this is the refuge and they have no other refuge, then one really becomes a disciple of the Buddha. And as such, there is a kind of a steadying effect. It doesn't let you down. You don't, you don't get sacked. You stay with that. But the, 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 the most powerful refuge is the refuge that comes through insight, which is that we begin to see that even without these conditioned supports, such as recollections and so on, which are conditioned purely by the mind's activity, or the conditions of joy and well-being that are, that, are, that are dependent upon the mind's concentration, ability to concentrate and focus. There's also the uh, well-being and the freedom that comes not through doing anything at all. It's unconditioned. Or that, and this is the uh, insight which is the ability that when the mind is strong enough, the possibility of recognizing the real way the mind behaves and seeing that in all mental behavior, there is an opening, there's a door to freedom. And this door becomes wide and it opens when one cultivates skillful comma, skillful activities, skillful mental activities such as the meditation, such as morality, such as contentment with little, such as sharing, such as compassion. These all are skillful and none of them is wasted. So these never get in the way of your practice. These are always essential, essential for practice. You don't develop insight without these. Because insight doesn't do anything apart from witness. You have to be able to open that door through these training practices and then insight is that which begins to see through the door it can't be another way because insight into freedom can't be something that you do and have and make because then it wouldn't be unconditioned freedom it has to be something that's just there that the only activity if you like is to stop moving away from it So now if we, when the, when the mind is, is, has skillful conditions so that we, we actually are able to, to be more aware of our mind, we're not kind of so ashamed or averse or frightened of ourselves that we can actually 
bear with ourself, our mind, our self. Then you see that what becomes more apparent, at least to me, is that the, that the processes of mind that I call myself actually are going through a pattern of arising and ceasing. They're, they're changing and they go through a wave pattern of come up and they go down, they come up and they go down, another one comes in and come, And all these pauses and spaces, they're, they, they're inconstant, they change. And there are, if you like, there's a kind of space in there. The space is whenever the pattern of the mind either changes or stops. So if you think of something, you deliberately think of one thing, you're holding your mind attention on that, trying to figure something out, and then something interrupts it, like a sound interrupts it. So for a moment, the mind is doing something, and then it's taken away. Now between, this is something that, you know, you probably don't really see or make much of, but when the mind's pattern or process or activity is jolted or interrupted, there's a kind of moment, a break moment. Now, when you meditate and steady and calm your mind, those, that whole process of the mind's activity is slowed down. So you see these break moments are actually more something you, you can witness, you can, be, you can experience more fully. Now, this can also be something that you, you can do not necessarily just through tranquility, but through steadying your attention. So, tranquil, tranquility really involves a kind of a real uh, profound slowing down of mental processes. But steadying your attention can also be just fixing your attention upon something, you know, establishing a particular reference and staying with that, just holding your mind onto that and noticing the changes. So like a physical feeling. Physical sensation. Or even when I'm speaking, you know, the sounds, and then the pauses. So it doesn't, you don't have to be that calm to witness that. And in the pauses... If one actually does a let, let the pause, you're really with the sound, and you let the pauses be the pauses. And then there's a kind of... Oh. And perhaps if the pause is a little bit longer than half a second, the mind begins to fill it up with something. You know, start getting in there and creating something. <laughs> so if we can just actually refrain, then in these, these the processes that occur... There are these little windows, if you like. And if you begin to sort of incline those, you're attentive to those, they are, they are, they are, quite, attra- they are quite attractive windows in a way. Because there's a, there's a big space through there. There's something mysterious, profound, vast, formless, unfluctuating, not heated, not cold, not, you know, it's got no, you know, tangible quality. Part of it is very peaceful. And it's not something you're deliberately trying to create. It's not something you set up. It's it's just there. (coughs) One of the fundamental ways of just recognizing the window is to be aware of the change of things and particularly the ending of thought or feeling or sound physical sensation an idea a mood an emotion a plan sound of a car going down the drive the door closing what's there then what follows behind it if one just stays with that rather than 
add something to it. So this is like the first gate, the Nietzsche. So one who inclines this way begins to uh, see this possibility. This is a sign, a mark or a sign. We call it the sign of impermanence. But what does the sign point to? What does that signpost point to? Something that's uh, um, beyond desire. You can't say it's interesting, or it doesn't. It's just it's it's beyond that. It's wishless. You don't say, you know, I want some. Can't you don't have to want it because it happens. If you start wanting it, it doesn't happen because the wanting fills it up. Your mental intention fills up that space. So you're trying to make things impermanent is the way to bung yourself up. So this is not not a kind of dogmatic thou shalt believe in impermanence kind of stuff because if you did, you wouldn't experience it. (laughs) The very belief would block up the window. But if you see your belief come to an end Oh, there's nothing impermanent. It's all permanent. I'm permanently stuck here. Oh, dear. Oh, it changed. It ended. (laughs) Then it it happens naturally. So this is a... It really gives you a feeling for the kind of... The honesty, the lightness, and the immediacy, and the very specific nature of it. You're not looking at a philosophical statement. You're looking specifically at the movement of one silly little thought in your mind or one wonderful mood, or one concern. Very earthy, grounded, particular thing. It has to be particular, otherwise you don't get it at all. So this door to the deathless is not spacing out. It's not some metaphysical proposition. It's not looning off somewhere into outer regions. It's actually being so much here that you're more here than all the stuff that you put on top of it. And you begin to really, you know, when you begin to experience that, then you realize that the kind of relief that maybe you don't need to put so much on top of it, just a little, sort of shape it up a bit. But you've got that kind of, you know, you've got, if you like, the physical requirements. So, you, like food. Um, clothes, shelter, basic stuff. But they can be really basic, just enough. Because you ex- you're not seeking the rest of the fulfillment experience out of it. That, that window is providing that. And we, you know, this is something you check out, see if it's this way or not. This must always be the most available of the signs to the deathless, to Nibbana that we can come across. And it's that which is supported by whatever's good, whatever's happy, you know, happy in ourselves, not happy through something outside, but when we're happy in ourselves, when we're well in ourselves, and we look after our own well-being, it's not about deprivation or ego-shattering or psychological torment or, you know, some sort of harrowing experience. Harrowing experiences happen. You don't have to seek them out. What you, what you incline towards is the well-being, joy, contentment, ease of heart you deliberately incline that way if you're not feeling that way then you begin to question what are you what are you neglecting what are you missing out what are you neglecting to to care for what are you neglecting to to look after and it will be something very much about here
quite simple, quite immediate, you're forgetting to, to love yourself, to, to care for it. So this, uh, this is where this, uh, you don't bother with the teaching of anatta, not self, until you've, until you've really begun to understand impermanence. Because you look at non-self, and what happens is that the personality's war on the self is then justified. It's only when we've begun to really understand the personality mechanisms themselves as no longer something we take refuge in and use as our as our principles that we can begin to pass through the self-experience. Otherwise the personality just becomes the tyrant that we may get stuck with. We're saying, you're not good enough, you didn't do enough, you didn't do this enough. Because your personality begins to become a Buddhist personality. And they're really unforgiving. Because <laughs> once they start to take on these kind of highly idealized configurations, then the self is certainly not good enough for that. And it's kind of a merciless experience. So, Nietzsche, you just get, begin to find a refuge beyond personality. This must be the, the first place to enter the deathless, to begin to recognize there is that door. And then if this becomes something that we've begun to be more confident with, then anatta, not self, becomes something that, that is clear, is more evident. And as one gets to grips with that, it's something we can take on. So, offer this for your reflection.